Hello, this is Jeff with Citizens Media TV and People Conversations and Mr. Zinna, I'm really glad that you could join me. We've seen each other quite a bit during this campaign. Thank you for being with us. Jeff, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me down. I love it. Great. Um, so uh, we're in a Dad's Bar and Grill in Lumberton, New Jersey, um, which is uh, right off right on 38. And uh, okay, so why don't we just start off by saying, well, we've seen each other quite a bit. I've seen yes. you quite a bit um, by nature of being with uh, Bill Brennan. Right. And uh, he's uh, given me quite the education. Over the He's past a good couple guy. months, Bill Brennan and I get along very well. We have a lot of respect for each other. He, uh, I, I've, uh, it's been a tidal wave of new experiences. Well, good. I'm glad being, you're enjoying it. Being in court with him, and uh, it's, I just have not experienced that kind of thing before. Great. So, so why don't you uh, just give a background on yourself, just personally, tell us about yourself. Sure. So I'm a councilman in Tenafly, New Jersey. I'm in my second term. I'm council president. I've been acting mayor for about six months. I have uh, married. I have four wonderful children and a wonderful wife, of course. And uh, we live in uh, we live in Tenafly. And I own a small business that uh, manages data. And that is a uh, a bio of my life. And I am in this race for governor in the Democratic primary. And June sixth is the election. What uh, data do you do? data does your business handle? We manage data for complex commercial litigation. Uh, it's primarily electronic discovery data, uh, which is used as evidence in lawsuits. Okay. Um, describe just geographically where Tenafly is. So we're about uh, 10 minutes from the George Washington Bridge, right? Uh, our town is actually on the Hudson River, although the part that's on the river is a nature preserve. No one actually lives there. Uh, but we're about 10 minutes north of the George Washington Bridge, and uh, my office is in Englewood, right next door to uh, to Tenafly. Okay, is that the top right, uh, northeast corner of Jersey? We're in the northeast corner of New Jersey, that's correct. Okay. So, why don't you tell us your history politically? So, I first got involved, uh, I would guess my awakening in terms of public service and politics probably started um, in 19, uh, 1974. We came uh, when I was 14 years old, so I've given away my age there. And uh, we came home from vacation, my, my parents and I and my siblings, and my father turned on the television as Richard Nixon was resigning. And so that is, oh, yeah. yeah, yep. So, you know, I was 13 years old, 14 years old. That was my first awareness of it. And uh, fast forward to 1980, I was at the Democratic National Convention when Senator Ted Kennedy um, gave his, uh, his speeches there at the convention. Uh, I had the privilege of being on the floor with a press pass. Who was against, that was against Reagan. Who was against Reagan? So, right, he, he was challenging uh, President Carter for the nomination at that point. But right, ultimately President uh, Reagan won that election in the general election. In 1988, I ran for state assembly in New York against, uh, I was in a, uh, a Republican district, of course I was a Democrat, I ran as a Democrat, against a, a second term incumbent, George Pataki, who went on to become governor of New York, and uh, he beat me for that state assembly race, but that was a good lesson there. And then I worked on both of President Clinton's uh, election campaigns, uh, which was a great experience and, and, and great fun to be involved with. Like volunteering, knocking on door, that kind oh, of thing? Oh, volunteering. Um, they actually, um, I didn't personally do door, door knocking. I did a lot of phone calls, and they put me uh, in events. So if the president was having a fundraiser, 
I was typically uh, one of the people who was at the uh, front door uh, bringing the guests in and signing them in and working with the Secret Service to make sure the people who were there were supposed to be there. So it was a lot of great exposure at that time. And uh, I ran for, I came upon, uh, when my wife and I moved to uh, Tenafly about 10 or 12 years ago, we, uh, most of the town was uh, Republican council people and had been Republican controlled for about 100 years. And I got involved in politics right away, got on the planning board. What year is this again? This is about uh, 10, 12 years ago and uh, got involved in the movement to uh, get more Democrats elected to office in Tenafly, and we did that. Today we have an independent mayor and we have six Democrats on the town council. And I ran, um, I, 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 before I won my first council seat, I lost three elections and I just kept on running. And it's one of the messages in this campaign, I'm out there talking to Democrats a lot, um, is that if you're in a town that's controlled by Republicans and you want to get elected to office and you're Democrats, you have to keep running, you have to keep trying, you have to not give up. So I go out there to help deliver that message to those folks to, to, so they understand that they can win. If they keep fighting and they keep trying, they can get elected. I think that's very important. So when did this 100 years end? So was that your first term? This, uh, this 100 year control, uh, 2000, 2002 or so, 2000, when the control really started to erode. And then, you know, I, I, I came on the scene and I, and I helped end it completely. And what year was that when you got on council? So, believe, uh, right? so I've been a councilman for six years, so that was 2011 okay. when I was first elected. And what group, what group did this? What the Democrats group? in town. Oh, it was just the Democrats, the Democrats, not a particular, okay. No, it was the Democrats, the Democratic, uh, the Democratic uh, chairwoman and the vice chair. They have a ton of energy, they're great people, and um, we all, we set in motion uh, a set of events that uh, kept getting Democrats elected to office. Well, the reality is though we keep getting elected because in our town we keep delivering. We keep the taxes under control, uh, we deliver the public services, and the people are happy with that result. And is it still a Republican town? The majority of voters, so the majority of, it's split three ways. We have Republicans, we have Democrats. The Democrats have a little bit of an edge now because you have a lot of uh, ex-urbanites moving to our town and they tend to register as Democrats. But really the big number are the independent voters. Okay, so can you give us, what have you done on the board? What substantial stuffs, substantial things have been done by you on the board or you know, you're sure. proud of the accomplishment of the sure. council itself. Sure. Well, let, let's talk about some of the uh, the day-to-day -day stuff. Is uh, Tenafly has uh, the highest? We recently granted the highest uh, ratings by Standard and Poor's and Moody's, so we're able to borrow money at very low cost, like two percent or less for our town. We uh, have kept our tax increases under two percent every year. We have never had layoffs while I've been on the council. Not one person was ever laid off. We've managed to, any changes we make, we do it through attrition only. We have, on my watch, we have built affordable housing, multiple affordable housing units. We have partnered with United Way to build a special needs housing units in our town. We've preserved, we have a 400 or so acre nature preserve that uh, we have protected. We're a tree city. We love growing trees in our town. We have eased up on a lot of our zoning regulations that were frankly archaic that prevented um, some of our stores from being filled with, um, with uh, uh, retail, whether they're restaurants or uh, any sort of store. We had a lot of archaic uh, 
um, zoning rules in our town that is difficult for businesses to open, and we've lifted those restrictions. We, uh, we changed some serious restrictions when it came to senior housing. A, someone came into our town and said, we want to build uh, X number of units of housing for seniors here, and our zoning laws were too restrictive. And we said, well, go to the planning board. And they said, we don't want to spend two years and then be told no. Why is it so restrictive? Other towns aren't this restrictive. And so on the mayor and council level, we voted unanimously to change our zoning laws because they didn't make any sense. So we recognized the things we need to do to make our town competitive with other towns. And uh, we've addressed uh, needs of our senior citizens. We bought a senior bus uh, just this year to start transporting our residents uh, you know, from point A to their doctors and back home again and to our senior center. We've done a lot of good things in town. Um, one last question about your council, and then I want to go into this race. How did this transition from Republican to Democrat, were you left with a mess? Like, was, was it good when you guys came in, when the Democrats came in, or when you came in, or was it you know, pretty good already. So it's it's been a wonderful town for a hundred years, but the costs were spiraling out of, spiraling out of control. So let's go right to the the money aspect of it. As I mentioned earlier, all of our taxes under the past our tax increases under the past six years have been less than two percent or less for the past six years. Okay, and we've managed through that. Prior to that, for about ten or fifteen years, the tax increases were six, seven, eight, nine percent a year with a constant hiring and bloating in, uh, in, our, in our employees, in our administration, in our borough. So things were starting to spin out of control and many of us in town got tired of that and we were able to see what was happening. And we got it under control within two or three years, we got that under control and made the right management decisions. Okay, actually, Ben gave me a few questions regarding council, so sure. I'm just gonna ask you these. You had balanced six budgets with a surplus is mm -hmm. that every single one since you've been we, in there? Oh, we, we have a surplus every year. That's correct. Every year. Um, briefly, how did you do that? Well, we, we manage our money. Um, so we have a surplus every year of $3 million, and then we take a million and a half of it, half of that money, and we apply it to, uh, you know, to, to our costs. So we use a million and a half of it to help lower the burden on the taxpayers. That's basically our rainy day fund. But then we tax ourselves in such a way that we build up that surplus over the next 12 months. So 12 months later, we're back at three million. And then we use a million and a half and we keep repeating that pattern. Now- So the rest of it's invested? Sure, oh, oh it's right, it's in short-term investments in, in, to the extent that the borough is allowed to make certain investments. Um, you know, we invest that money. Um, but, um, but we look at things very long term, you know, this is some mundane stuff, but you know, we keep our fire trucks for 30 and 40 years. Uh, it's a two year cycle to buy a new one. We're very careful, you know, we bring the fire chief in, Chief uh, he, he, Philpott, he's a great guy, but you know, he puts us through the motions and we put him through the you know, rigmarole of justifying the equipment he needs. And he does that because he knows what he's doing. And we plan these things out, we, we have, planning for our road for repavements you know we have 15 year plans about how many different roads get paved each year and we keep ourselves on a cycle we use our uh, police cars in a way where every police car we don't recycle them until until they are about 11 years old and um, you know we buy X number of cars every year and so we we do things very diligently and very thoughtful um, and we don't take anything for granted okay uh 
When you ran for your last time of fly council primary, primary, did you have the line first of all, and did you butt up against the establishment? That is the last question about this part. Okay, so the last time I ran for council, uh, a gentleman who has wanted to be on council for a long time, runs in a lot of elections, decided to challenge me in a primary. Um, yes, I had the line, and I had the line in Tenafly. Um, he was not successful. I won the primary, you know, overwhelmingly, and then went on to win the general election in November. And did you butt up against the establishment in any of this? No, not in. The, I did when I first came on the scene. Uh, when I first came on the scene in Tenafly, the Tenafly Municipal Committee uh, basically said, "Who are you? You're relatively new to town." As a matter of fact. A couple of people said, why don't you go out and run for Congress? Why do you want to be a councilman in Tenafly? And so I didn't get the nomination the first year, but I came back the second year, and then the committee, uh, after I spent a year with them, the committee supported me and nominated me. Okay, great. So now on to the, the governor race. Sure. Um, describe how you, the process of getting into it. What, what made you want to be into it? How did you get in? How did you start? you know, doing this and describe how your campaign has been so far. So I got into this race in terms of the decision time. I was thinking about it for a long time. After the results of the presidential election last year, uh, we were, were, were very disappointing. I'm not going to go on a whole monologue about, you know, my views of the gentleman in the White House right now. But the results of the election were very disappointing, and I couldn't just sit there and be angry and throw my shoes at the television. And like I said to a few people the other night, you know, and have my wife yell at me because she's tired of hearing me yelling at the television. So I decided to do something, and she and I discussed it. And I said I'm going to get into the gubernatorial race. It is a wide-open race. And um, we kicked off our campaign in January of this year. And uh, I think delivering a message to the people of this state that we can't look backwards. We have to look forwards. Whatever has, has, has transgressed that we don't like and we don't support, that's behind us now. We have to fix whatever has gone wrong and look to the future. And I think public service is a very important endeavor, and it's probably the thing in my life that I am most successful at, and, and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm in this race, to serve the people of the state. And so describe the campaign from the beginning, you know, sure. how, how it started off. and. So we, we started the campaign um, in January. Uh, we started fundraising. We started house parties. How did you get to know Harry? Harry found us. Harry was looking for a gubernatorial race to get into, um, and he picked us. Uh, he reached out to us, and he, t he spoke to one of my staff members, and he came in, and we had a conversation with him, and he, he spoke to other campaigns also and decided to uh, join our campaign, which was fabulous. What's just briefly his history? What is his, is his it, history? Yeah. So he just as far as campaigns are concerned. This is this is his first uh, major campaign. He's volunteered in other campaigns as a college student, doing some phone calls and walking and things of that nature. But this is his first real campaign. That's great. So, uh, how has it been? You oh, it's are been fantastic. So, well, tell us how it's been fantastic. So. So I, I have met, I can't even count how many people I have met, how many groups I have spoken in front of, and how many places that I have been to in New Jersey. And uh, it's very exhilarating. And um, people want to have their voices heard. People of this state are very frustrated. Um, I dare use the word, in some cases they're very angry. 
but they're very frustrated by what's been going on the past eight years in their state. They feel they feel a little bit neglected and forgotten. And uh, look, at that's why I'm in this race, to remind people it's about the future. We can't dwell on the past. And uh, that's the message that people want to hear. There is a lot of energy out there as a result of last year's election. Um, you see it with the Our Revolution group. You see it with the Indivisible group. You see Democrats sprouting up in places where Democrats haven't even had a meeting in 100 years. I mean, that is unbelievable to see that sort of energy. And then as a candidate, you feed off of that energy because they want to do good things and you want to do good things for them. And it, it all kind of coalesces together. So I think it's fair to say that according to you are struggling to get traction. Of course. And yeah. lots of candidates are struggling yeah. to get traction. Yeah. And the polls show, as of a few days ago, that, you know, Murphy. Yep. And then everybody else. Yes, that's correct. So you, you have, you have, I don't know how long this theme has been there, uh, but anyone but Murphy. Mm -hmm. you've, you've been promoting anyone but Murphy. Correct. And you speak very kindly about yes. all of the candidates. Absolutely. So tell us. So, so... When I talk about anyone but Mr. Murphy, the issue is about money, unfortunately. The gentleman has you know, poured about you know, 18 million, 15 of it, his own cash into this campaign. And I think that's a real problem, the way a candidate is able to effectively buy the election. And, and it, it, it's, it's not, whether it's right or wrong, you know, there's nothing illegal about it. It's, it's perfectly acceptable in this state. But I think there is something fundamentally that wrong. That doesn't necessarily it. mean right or wrong. Well, well that, you're law, right. Yeah. right. The law makes it legal, but it's not right. There's no question about that. Um, and when I, when I talk about anyone but Murphy, he, he is the least qualified candidate for governor. I mean, he be he was ambassador to Germany, which is fantastic. But he got that ambassadorship because he raised three hundred million dollars for the DNC, and he got the reward. So, what's the message to all of our children? Raise cash, and you get the job. Is it you know how could we how could we how could we expect to fix our potholes and lower our taxes or control our taxes when it's all about big cash buying influence? And now, on a positive note. When I talk about the other candidates up there, um, Mr. Wisniewski, who's, he's an assemblyman. He's been in the assembly for 20 years. Um, we've been together on stage a lot. He's a gentleman. I have a lot of respect for him. And, and if you want a candidate who, uh, who has a, a strong understanding of how the legislature operates and has put bills before and has been at the lead of the things he, he believed in, and, and he was out there you know, carrying the torch in terms of the things that Christie was doing wrong very early on, well, then, then he's your candidate. If, if, that's, if that's what you want in a governor, he's the type of guy you should be voting for. Um, uh, we have uh, 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 Senator Lesniak is running. I mean, he's been a senator for 30 years. He's been at the forefront of women's issues, uh, the environmental issues, uh, social justice issues, criminal justice reform. And if, if that's important to you, then, then that's the person you should be voting for. Uh, Jim Johnson has experience as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. He's an attorney. He's, he's a brilliant guy. Um, he has very deep understanding of deep uh, public policy issues, and he's able to uh, intellectually grasp the, the strong issues and the important issues of the day. And if, and if that's your type of person, you should be voting for him, right? And, and when I talk about um, my friend Bill Brennan, I mean, this is a guy who speaks truth to power, and he's not afraid of anyone. 
that's the bottom line with him. And, I mean, you know, he talks about issues that everyone talks about around the dinner table at home or on the, about the barbe- at the, when they're at the barbecue this weekend. It's like Bill Brennan's one of the guys who's sitting right there having the conversation with you. And if, if that's the type of candidate you want, then you vote for him. Now, for myself, I have to give myself a couple of points too, right? I've been on both the legislative side and the executive side of governing which none of the other candidates have. And uh, I understand uh, the, how difficult it is to use and administer scarce public resources, which are taxes. And I've made hard decisions, and uh, I do it actually very well. And if, if, if I'm the type of candidate, then that's, you should be voting for me then. So what's your goal? Is your goal to win, or is your goal to get Murphy to lose? No, my goal has always been to win. I don't think negatively like that. In terms of my goal, I don't wake up in the morning and say, uh, I have no personal animosity against Mr. Murphy. Um, I don't get up in the morning. You have personal animosity against the system that he's choosing to take advantage of. That's correct. My problem is, is that, see, Mr. Murphy's the smart one. He is taking advantage of the system that has been set up, and we need to change the system. We need to have open primaries in this state. We need to change uh, money in the campaigns, so we shouldn't allow the type of contributions that we have now at the county level to be to go on and then you then you get granted the county line which almost certainly assures a win so it, it's not about uh, uh, me getting up in the morning and saying negative things about people it's about me saying I want to win and then by the way what's my campaign for the future because I'm also a realist just like you mentioned before we all look at the polling numbers we look at the endorsements. We see what's happening. We understand what's going to happen on June 6. So we're looking at the next elections. We're looking at helping getting Democrats elected at the municipal and the legislative uh, level throughout this state until we're ready to announce our next campaign. When did this anyone but Murphy idea come up for you? Was this a, something at the beginning of your campaign or a more recent thing? No, this, is, this has really started to come up in the past uh, five or six weeks when we were shut out of the, uh, the elections that the State Board of Elections sponsors at Stockton University was the first one, not the elections, the debates. Elect debates, the E-L-E-C debates, which for people out there is Election Law Enforcement Commission. Right, so all six candidates, myself included, have met all the constitutional requirements. Now there's six candidates. We've all met the constitutional requirements to be on the ballot in June. But the ELEC rules say you only get to be in a state-sponsored debate debate if your checkbook is big enough. And there's something fundamentally wrong with that. Now, the voters don't have to vote for me if they don't like me. I'm okay with that. I can sleep with that. But the idea that the voters don't have the opportunity to hear my voice or my colleague Bill Brennan's voice at an official debate is simply not right. There's six of us, there's not 600 candidates. We went through a lot of bars and hoops to get ourselves on the ballot. And Bill Brennan and I should have been allowed to participate in those debates. As a matter of fact, uh, the the truth of the matter is, is that uh, Senator Lesniak and Phil Murphy signed a letter that that my staff had had authored and signed a letter in support of us participating in those debates. So everyone, uh, you know, Mr. Lesniak and Mr. Murphy get credit for doing that uh, to allow us into the debate stage. Um, And we had our outcast debate. Correct. And I should also say that there are four Republicans, two who got into the debates based on their money. 
Um, but there's a really, that was, I think that went really well, by the way. It went great. Yeah. It was fabulous. That was a great experience. But it's important to distinguish, which you taught me about, which is you get into the ELEC debate by raising $430,000 in donations, and then that qualifies you for public funding. Right. And the spirit of this is that you get, if you take public money, then you have to go in and tell the public about your views. Correct. That's the spirit of it. Correct. But there's this extra thing, which I wonder in the history where that came in, which is if you just have $430,000 that you put into your campaign bank account, you get in. So that has nothing to do with the spirit of the law because they don't qualify for public fundings in that case. So that's been a very interesting experience. So two on the Democratic side and two on the Republican side were all shut out. So, um, okay, how many debates have you been in? How many debates, town halls, where all the candidates were invited? Oh, uh, probably all the candidates or most of the candidates attended, probably probably around 25 or 30. And how many of those did Phil Murphy attend? Oh, uh, he, uh, as a general rule, very few. There were very few. He was at county conventions, okay? My, my number was actually going to probably we were probably at 35 or 40 now that I'm thinking about the county conventions. He attended the county conventions. Most of the other forums he did not attend. Most of them. Oh, most of them he doesn't attend. Oh, absolutely. He, occasionally he'll send a uh, he'll send someone to sit in for him, uh, that sort of thing. But most of them he does not attend. And yet he still will, you know, he has by far the most recognition. But he's not the one. He's the one that's missing when you actually go out to talk with the people. Well, right, of course. I mean, he doesn't... With the real people, with, with the actual people. Right, we talk not. to real people, whether they're in convention halls or whether they're in taverns and diners. Um, well, because the risk that he's got risk on his side and that he doesn't want to spend his time and energy if there's a downside for him. What kind of downside would there be? To him attending debates? Well, sure, if he attends... The more he attends, the more the public sees him and meets him, the more they'll realize what he's all about. I mean, so so to us, to, to myself and the uh, the other four candidates, it's it's all upside. We want to see as many people as we can, so that people can see who we really are. But for Mr. Murphy, he has he has uh, the county line for all 21 counties. So the if people really learn about him, the risk is all downside for him. He has no upside benefit. Are you suggesting that, like Hillary Clinton, the more she spoke, the more she was disliked? That so she tried to minimize the amount of debates. Is is it that, or is it just simply that he's so high on the hog with 21 county? I, th I think it's I think it's both. I think you've got an issue where, you know, we get feedback from people and and people tell us what they believe of the different candidates, and the risk he has is, you know, when he's in a room with people, he, he is he's a very successful banking professional from Goldman, which is fabulous. Goldman Sachs is a, you know, it's a very successful, good company. But he can't shed that skin. He, you know, any more than Corzine was able to be someone he wasn't. We could all pretend that we want to be someone He different. says a large corporation or something to that effect on his website. He does not say. Right, exactly. On his website. That's correct. That's correct. Because he's afraid of the comparison. So... You just suggest, well, we sort of just brought it up a little bit. Hillary had likability issues, had likability issues. Bernie was clearly had more, uh, what do you call it, positive polling. I forget Correct. what it's called. Favorability. Right. 
And you have brought this up that you are concerned that if Murphy wins, that that could result in just like Hillary versus Hill, Bernie didn't win. He was really popular, which is like, why didn't he win if he was really popular? But putting that aside for a moment, Hillary won and she was the reason Trump won was because she I, I in my opinion, she lost. Trump really didn't win. She lost. Mm-hmm. And that that the you know the margin that pushed him over the edge, or I should say pushed her off of a cliff, was voters that were so turned off by what she represents in the past forty years of whatever that's destroyed right. a lot of stuff that they would rather just throw a bick in the window and vote for Trump out of spite. And that, in my opinion, is what pushed Trump over the edge to winning. So you are suggesting that there is the same potential problem in this election with Murphy versus Guadano. Is that how you say her name? Guadano? Yeah, Guadano. So how, how similar is that situation? Is it? I mean, Hillary has a much longer history. Mm-hmm. So can you compare... Sure. Like how truly the same that situation so, you, you think it could be. So let's start with let's talk about the voters for a second. Voters are frustrated. Uh, the voters are angry, and all the voters aren't necessarily clear what they're frustrated about or what they're angry about. And and okay, so if we accept that premise that the voting public is very flexible right now, which makes them unpredictable. Okay. Now, I agree with your assessment that Hillary lost that election more than Trump won it, right? The results are the results, though. And what we're running the risk with now, and I raised this with a couple of county chair people, and I said, I'm very worried that we're making the same mistake this year that we made last year, that we're assuming that we know how it's going to turn out and we're buying our own BS because that's what we want to believe, that we're invincible. And I could very see, I could see a scenario whether it's uh, that, that, that the lieutenant governor could win in November if people are unhappy. Because look, what's going to happen? Wait, we're Democrats, but let's, let's, let's face the reality. Uh, the Republicans are going to paint Mr. Murphy as a billionaire, another Goldman Sachs guy who wants to sell the throughway, wants to sell the turnpike, whatever a crazy... He's publicly said those things? He's publicly said those things? Oh, oh, oh Corzine did. Corzine said that. Murphy oh, oh, oh said they're, that. they're attaching. saying that they, they will attach it that it's the same sort of craziness, and it's another billionaire, and why does this guy want to be governor? Why would he spend all these millions to be governor of the state? And basically, all the Republicans have to do is haul out most of the ads from from the other five Democrats of what we've been talking about for the past three or four months, and, and raising that along. So the Dem- we don't know how the Democrats are going to vote come November and, and the people of the state. And let's remember something. When Democrats don't love their candidate, what do they do? They stay home. When Republicans love their when Republicans hate their candidate, they go out and vote for their candidate. And it's a fundamental difference between the Republicans. When Republicans and the don't like their we, own candidate, they, they go out and vote for their own candidate. They vote for their candidate. Republicans are very loyal voters for their candidate. Oh. Whereas Democrats have the opposite effect. If they're not happy with their candidate, they stay home. And we saw that with Hillary Clinton. And we could see that again with Mr. Murphy. Okay. I want to go back to New Jersey ELEC for a moment. Sure. I like you. I asked Mr. Johnson a question two nights ago, three nights ago, uh, related to it. And I'd like you to watch it. I'll, sure. inter- I'll intercut the actual okay. video. Um, a few minutes. 
Um, I just really like that. Um, so given that, I, I genuinely think that you are an excellent candidate. There is one thing that I am disappointed with that you've done. Uh, actually, I would be saying not done, which is um, you had the opportunity to do what I would think is the right thing, and with inaction, you didn't do it. And what that was was um, a put your name on the statement or whatever it was of allowing all candidates to be on the stage. Mr. Lesniak and Mr. Murphy signed the statement saying everyone should be on the stage, even those candidates who couldn't afford it. You and Mr. Wisniewski, who were the only two that qualified for public funding, chose not to be on that. You didn't choose, you just didn't answer in time. So it was like inaction. So I'd like to get your response sure. to that. So that, that is an important question. Um, and and here's, here's the sort of range of the responses. And, and I have actually pretty strong feelings about why I decided not to sign. Um, I've said this before, I've actually lived my life kind of on the tip of the sphere. And in many instances I've been told, okay, these are the rules that you follow to get inside the game. Um, and I have followed those rules, and from time to time the goalposts have been moved. And when I was presented with this, I was presented with something that Phil Murphy had all of a sudden, who had skipped seven debates, maybe seven or eight opportunities to appear side by side um, with me and with Senator Lesniak and with Assembly Assemblyman Wisniewski. Um, he decided not to. And so what he was going to do at the one time when I was definitely going to have the opportunity to, to deal with him directly, to confront him on some of his issues, to ask him about what, what it was in his Goldman Sachs history that reflected progressive values, that he then signed onto a letter that would delete anyone's opportunity to directly confront him and say, okay, Jim Johnson, you, once again I will be told, you followed the rules, we're going to change the goalposts. And what did following the rules mean? It's not easy to raise the money that I had to raise to qualify. Particularly when there were people in the state who were getting calls, calls, asking them why had they contributed to me, and giving the people my contributors a hard time for actually supporting my candidacy. And I had told many people that you should make these gifts, and some of the gifts were sacrificial, the contributions were sacrificial in terms of the amounts that they give. I said, because this is the only way I will get a chance to stand on the stage. And I had made a commitment to them that it was important for them to make those contributions so I could at least get a fair shot on stage. And so when I looked at that letter, my perspective was, once again, we have somebody who's trying to change the rules on me after I've done everything I could to comply. It is not easy to raise the money that I did, um, but I worked for that. And I wasn't going to let anybody say to me, I'm sorry, Jim, we want to change the rules after you've been playing by the rules for four and a half months. So no, I didn't sign the letter. And I was very polite about it. But the rules ought to apply to all of us. And I wasn't going to say, Phil Murphy, who just particularly decided that he was going to participate in this debate, all of a sudden become a champion of the new rules of democracy, even as he's spending $18.5 million in this election. So no, sir, I did not sign. Please give your reaction to that. So I, I have to um, 
I can't uh, speak any falsehoods against Mr. Murphy on this issue. He frankly helped us with this. Uh, my staff prepared this letter, and then we discussed it with Mr. Brennan, and then Bill and I agreed on, on providing this letter to the other candidates to get them to sign on. Uh, Mr. Murphy signed on first, and he had no conditions that he put on it. There, Mr. Johnson's insinuating there's some conditions to the debate. Uh, Mr. Murphy agreed to have us included in that elect debate immediately with no conditions, and so did Senator Lesniak. So when Jim Johnson speaks about um, Mr. Murphy leading this change of the rules plan and wanting to change the terms of the debate, that, that is not accurate. Uh, that is not how it played out. Uh, and Jim Johnson's campaign uh, refused to give us an answer other than, uh, quote, uh, to, to the extent of we're not ready to make a commitment on this at this time. Is that it? I'm sorry. Um, so there was something else, and I, don't, I, I can't articulate it well. I don't recall. Thank you, Ben. But something to the effect of the donations that he did get make him hypocritical in some way. Does that, does that ring a bell and, uh, at all? That Mr. Murphy was hypocritical. No, Mr. Johnson. That oh, the debates oh, that okay. he received, oh, and, sure. I, and I don't know, I'm just... just so I, I don't know if hypocrite... Let's just talk about you know, the types of donations he received. Um, look, at, he was able... He has a wealthy you know, group of friends, mostly attorneys from his legal career. Um, and uh, you know, they all wrote maximum amount of checks to get him in the debate. It's certainly not some groundswell of support from people writing three and five dollar and ten dollar contributions. You know, he has his own group of wealthy individuals who support him, and uh, you know that's that's great for him. But you know, the debate, Mr. Johnson. You know, in the recording we just saw, he, he spoke a lot about this issue of the rules, and. You know, in the, in the debate, I'm going to digress for a second. The conversations that go on regarding undocumented immigrants in sanctuary cities, you hear a lot of screaming and yelling about, uh, you know, we're a nation of laws, which is 100% correct, and we have to follow the rule of law regardless of the, what those laws are. And, you know, I'd like to remind everyone that sometimes the laws need to be changed, and they're not just. So let's pick a couple of them through our history. With money in politics. Money in politics is not just. It squashes the voice of the people and hurts them. It works against them. Just talk about there were, there were laws promoting slavery. They were wrong. They were not just. You know, we had a civil war and 600,000 people uh, fought to end it. Uh, women previously weren't allowed to vote. That was the law, and we changed the law. Uh, there were a lot of civil rights uh, that were not available to a huge segment of our population. We had protests, we had riots, and we changed the law. So the fact that something is a law doesn't make it right. And when you squelch the free speech of two major political party candidates in a gubernatorial debate, those laws are not right. So specifically, what law are you referring to at that right now? Sure. Just the, the money in politics the, the law? law the, money, the, the, the requirement that money equals speech, and you have to raise a certain amount of money, and all, even though you've met all the other constitutional requirements, you've gotten all your petitions signed, you've gotten them filed, you've made all the deadline dates, uh, but you're required to write a check in order to be considered uh, a bona fide candidate to be in the, the government-sponsored debates. And there's something wrong about the government deciding who gets to run for office and who gets to be in the debate. So my interpretation of uh, Mr. Johnson's response was that it was more, it was not against the lesser 
uh, wealthy candidates. Correct. It was a statement against the wealthier candidates that I scraped to get into this, and now you're trying to right. dilute. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and the the irony part, the ironic part about it is, the wealthiest candidate was the first one to say Mark Zinner and Bill Brennan should be in the debates. Why do you think? Why do you think that he was? Open to doing that, and it was easy. It was an easy decision. It wasn't. It was a very easy you didn't decision have to push him for to him. Do it. Let's talk about the practical side of it. He had nothing to gain by saying, uh, "Don't include Mark and Bill." It's like let them come in. He's already got the 21 county lines. Statistically, it statistically the people's vote doesn't even matter. The the the, the likelihood of him losing the primary is so slim, and he knows it, and so he's like, sure. Let Mark and Bill come to the debates. Regardless of what anybody says, I'm still going to win this election. Do you think there was any element of, I know they're not going to get on this stage anyway, so I'm going to sign? Look, I, I can't get into his head, right? I don't know what he was thinking at the time. But being a political animal myself, he had nothing but downside risk by saying no. Okay. He, would, he, would, he would look bad. Uh, and if we did get on the debate stage anyway, there would have been an issue we would have attacked him on. So he, he made the right political choice. Okay. So I'd like to move to uh, policy. Sure. So let's start. I did not get into politics at all until Bernie Sanders. And I'm wondering, you're, you've been a Democrat. I mean, you've just sure, been a Democrat. Of and what kind of Democrat were you before Bernie and after Bernie if he had a significant impact on you? Because a lot of your platform is what he would, what I, what his platform is. I've become much more progressive. I would have previously defined myself as a, a moderate Democrat in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, more center Democrat. And I've become more and more progressive as time has gone on. And frankly, I think it's because, let's, let's pick a policy. Let's talk about uh, health care. You know, most of the, 20 years ago, the conversation in this country was about health insurance and anything that the government controlled in terms of health care. We all talked about it as socialized medicine, as great evil. We don't talk about socialized medicine anymore. We talk about health care. We talk about health care as a fundamental human right because we've all woken up to what's going on around the world. And I look at uh, Denmark, which has had a single-payer system for 100 years. Everyone has health care. They pay for it the same way we pay for our Social Security taxes. Employer pays a little. Employee pays a little. So I've gone left of center on that. Health care is a fundamental human right. We're already paying more money now with the ridiculous system we have for for rationed health care because you know how it's rationed you call you go to the hospital you go to the doctor your health insurance company decides what kind of care you're going to get not your doctor not your nurse not your pharmacist not to mention extra cost right but the stress of course of dealing with that it's absurd it's it's completely ridiculous if we were all stand if a hundred of us were stranded on a desert island tomorrow and uh, there was one person who was a mason and he knew how to build houses and a carpenter and one person was a doctor and one person was the nurse you know would the hundred of us decide that um, you know you don't have enough seashells so therefore you don't get medical care we're gonna let you die no the doctor would take care of everyone's health the mason would build foundations and the carpenter would build houses and yeah uh, but then everyone would be approximately the same wealth 
everyone and, and my goal isn't to have approximately the same wealth i would say um, what my point well, is not, no ridiculous right right but but um, with healthcare it's not a wealth argument it's not a money argument we're spending more than we would already be spending if we had a single payer system it's actually more financially sound to have a single payer healthcare system look uh, the federal government with medicaid and medicare it, the cost of administering those systems is about 4% of the cost of the system you go off into the health insurance world and the professional hospital management world the ho- the, the cost of administering that money cl- closes in on 18% it's one of the things the government actually does very efficiently. So why wouldn't we follow the same model of Medicare for everyone? It kind of makes sense. And uh, I, I didn't understand this until very recently, but government takeover of healthcare really doesn't make sense because they just deal with the payments. You still go to, you know, private hospitals Correct. and so on. Right. I'm not talking about the governor, excuse me, the government taking over your health care process and talking about the government managing the money your doctor will still remain I'm agreeing private. with you I'm right. agreeing with you this okay. is just a concept making sure before. we're on the same page yeah right. no I, you're saying exactly what yep. I'm saying I just um, okay so I'm asking again so you became more progressive over time you said yes what impact did Bernie Sanders have on that that timeline that progression I think Bernie Sanders raised a lot of honest issues you know, he was up against a candidate. I'm asking, um, maybe you're answering this, but I'm asking right. how did that ap- impact your ch- transformation oh, from okay. Democrat to so, progressive? So from an, from uh, emotionally and rationally, you know, I opened up my mind. Uh, and, and I said, what is this guy talking about? What's this guy with this crazy hair talking about? And I started paying attention to him. Again, you know, 20 years ago, I don't know if I would have paid attention. You know, be honest, I'm not sure I would have paid attention to him. But all of a sudden, you know, as each year goes by and you have, you know, more life experiences, then you have a guy coming along saying, what? You know, he's, he's, he raised my consciousness, my social awareness, you know, that, that we're here to help and to be our brother's keepers and to help each other through this life we're battling through and we're all going through it and um, his his the way he was treated by the Democratic National Committee was frankly disgraceful and I, I didn't like the way he that's was treated. an understatement well, well, <laughs> I'm still rational okay so it is a complete understatement but his treatment was disgraceful and the result of that is that Donald Trump is president of the United States because of the way the DNC treated Bernie Sanders and the DNC's attitude towards candidates in general, and we have the same problem at the state level. So what you have been in politics for a while. So for me, I would say he taught me, like, he pretty much just defined my understanding of politics. Mm -hmm. And one thing in particular of the root of the problem, money, uh, money in politics. Period. Where before I used to think, well, lobbyists. Well, you know, they did, and then it was just this nebulous of politicians don't care about me. Mm-hmm. And it, but the root he really, I see it as he really educated the young people in America Correct. and the not and the non-aware people in America. Really educated us. Every single speech was very repetitive. So you have been in politics for a while. So what major things did he teach you? Sure. Well, his, I mean, he's fundamentally an outsider. I mean, his, his views on the healthcare system, 
his views on foreign intervention. I mean, this, this, is, this is an individual who's not afraid of anything. And, you know, I'm 56 years old, but every day I learn new things because I keep my mind open to new concepts. And uh, we have to have the self-confidence like he does to know that we're not always right all the time. And that's how we learn and that's how we move forward. Um, you know, probably the biggest lesson I learned was the way he was treated, which was fundamentally unfair. Another, the second biggest lesson was the money in politics problem. I mean, Citizens United, the Supreme Court case that basically said, you know, a corporation is a person and money equals speech, is, is probably one of the, it's right up there with, well, it's right up there with some of our most terrible Supreme Court decisions. Uh, because what it has done, it has turned, and Bernie's right about this, Senator's right, it has turned the country upside down on itself, where you have money controlling everything. And you know, I'm a capitalist. I own a small business. I've worked in corporate America. I've owned my own small businesses my whole life on and off, okay? And you, you look at, if you've ever read The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, okay, who is the go-to capitalist, okay? Adam Smith talked about, and I'm going to paraphrase him here, he talked about the issue that even if you, when you're a capitalist, you are still responsible for your community. You have to make sure the people that work for you and the people that live in your community are able to eat, are able to buy a home, are able to live safely, okay? And then you get more business. And then you get more business, and you have to give everyone a little piece of the cake off the table. Adam Smith knew this. Look, at even Henry Ford, who was no friend of labor, he, he was violent towards labor, but even he understood you had to pay people enough money that they could buy your products and live some sort of comfortable life. Otherwise, it won't work out. And kind of I'm, I'm coming full circle here. Bernie, un, Bernie Sanders understands that message, if that everyone doesn't have a meal on their table every night, and everyone doesn't have a fair opportunity, we're going to have real problems in this country. You know, right now here in the United States, I look at this, I'm a, I'm a, I studied history, political science in college, and I've always been an armchair historian, if you will. The state of the United States right now reminds me not of the 1960s and all the civil rights and social unrest, but of the 1850s, just prior to the Civil War, where we have a singular fundamental overwhelming issues going on that you start to see cracks in, in people's belief systems. And when you have, and everyone knows what I'm talking about, this past Thanksgiving after the election, the amount of fights and arguments that were going on in people's homes with, uh, with relatives and friends over who's in the White House and who's not is, is a sign of that sort of dysfunction. Bernie talks about I think the biggest thing that Bernie talked about, that one of the biggest things that he taught me, which you were just alluding to, is that it is not socialism where everyone gets the same amount of stuff and money. It is socialism of opportunity, where you can have rich people and you can have poor people, but everyone has the same opportunity. So uh, that's what you were alluding to. That's, that's exactly correct. So uh, regarding your platform, you significantly agree with Bernie's platform, as Absolutely. I understand it. Absolutely. What are the elements that you don't agree with or that you choose to do different things or see it different ways? So I, I, I don't know if I want to go on a tangent of what I don't agree with Bernie Sanders about. So let me talk to my 
my my platform a little bit. Okay, um, he hasn't talked about this issue because it wasn't relative to his campaign in terms of New Jersey. So there's an issue, and that is transportation and public transportation. I am a big believer in public transportation. Wherever you bring trains throughout the history of the world, you bring prosperity and job opportunities. Okay. So a couple of things I would like to do in transportation is, of course, again, a topic that he never covered. Uh, the Patco train line in South, South Jersey, I would like to... He had a great Patco speech. You didn't hear it? I didn't hear the Patco speech, no. <laughs> I would like to extend it further into southern New Jersey. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Um, the number seven subway train in New York City. I would like to bring that from New York City into New Jersey to give a single-seat ride to the, to the folks who uh, commute into the city daily. And also, when the George Washington Bridge was built, that was designed to carry New York City subway lines over it. And I would work with the governor of New York to extend that A-train line over the George Washington Bridge, over Route 4, Route 208, into Patterson to create opportunities all along that corridor for, for living, housing, apartments, and job opportunities in and out of New York City. All right, so that's transportation. Right. So, so we've covered healthcare, single-payer healthcare system. We talked about how we would we get that accomplished. Let's talk about pipelines for a second. Okay. I am completely against building any new pipelines in the state of New Jersey. And I, on your website, it says any fossil fuel pipelines, so not even nat- just natural gas or just oil. It says you fossil are against fuel. fossil fuel. Completely. I wouldn't build any of them. I think it's madness. I, we should not be encouraging more fossil fuel use in this state. And let's talk about fossil fuels as it relates to the oil wars we're fighting in the Middle East right now. Before, before you get to there, on your website it says a morator- you want a moratorium on pipelines. And this actually sort of came up in the Essex debate maybe, um, Essex County College debate. That is moratoriums a strong enough term? I think you mean it as strong as possible. That you don't just mean a moratorium, which can possibly end at some point. You no, I mean them not built. Period. Period. Do not build any more pipelines. Look, at, let's let's talk about the pipelines for a second, right? We, we need to encourage uh, renewable energy in this state. Um, wind power, solar power. Eventually, we'll get the tidal power. You know, we've got 130 miles of seashore. We can have wind farms, you know, 10 to 15 miles out. You won't even be able to see uh, solar power throughout the whole state. We should build a new electric car manufacturing plant in this state. We should be culturally moving away from fossil fuels. And let me give you an example why. When, uh, when the current governor, Christy... Because our children will be living in dystopia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so when, when Governor Christie decided... I'm getting punchy, sorry. It's all right. All right. It's Sunday night. It's late. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, when uh, Governor Christie decided not to build the ARC tunnel because it would cost 14 or $15 billion, okay, that was very short-sighted. We all understand why. You build tunnels to last for 50 or 100 years. Um, to put it in perspective, the cost of building that tunnel at that time was the cost of keeping our troops in Iraq for six weeks. Six weeks. So when we talk about not having the money... Martin Luther King has some sort of line of every dollar used for the military is taken off the plate of, or, you know, takes the plate away. I don't know. Takes things away from people who need practical, everyday things. Absolutely. So we have the money for things. We just don't spend it in the right way. So 
here's the thing. You know, while we're spending money on oil wars in the Middle East, one of the ways of keeping our brave troops home or sending them to places that um, their, their efforts are helping to save lives rather than protecting oil, um, that's why we need to be moving away from fossil fuels as a society so people don't have to die so that we can buy a $70,000 Cadillac Escalade and then drive to get an $8 cup of coffee at the local Starbucks. It doesn't make sense. That's why I wouldn't build the pipelines. It's time to stop that cultural thinking and move to renewables because it's not worth people dying over the fossil fuels. Um, this is what I think, and I'm curious just if you agree with this, which is we will never get to renewables until we finally get off of fossil fuels. And I mean, what I mean by that is I've heard, I've heard a, a, one person tell me an interesting idea, Fred Laverne, that uh, the fossil fuel industry could be bought out for $4 trillion. I don't think it was him, but someone uh, that just buy out the entire industry for $4 trillion, which that's not so far off from what we did in 2008 with uh, the, the housing crash. We, mm -hmm. It was around a trillion dollars. Um, but I see it as is until we truly get off of fossil fuels, when we do that, that that will be the incentive, the mother of invention, that will make us truly be able to finally, once and for all, get to green energy. Well, I mean, it's an interesting concept, putting the economics aside for a second, right? You, you can't stop using, practical purpose, you can't stop using fossil fuels on Friday and Saturday morning, everyone switches to renewables. Uh, I, I mean a more deliberate. Yeah, we need a, a deliberate plan. Well, so right, this is why, we, you know, if, if we want to get New Jersey to 100% renewable by 2050, you know, I'd like to see that by 2035. Um, I, I would, but, but this is how we do it. So I agree with the behavior where I would stop building pipelines to help force the state and the businesses and the corporate interests to change to renewables because you know, business people are practical. I'm a practical business person. Some guy, and I'm governor, and I sign that into law, they're going to wake up and say, all right, this guy's in or his governor. He's not going to let us build our pipelines. Uh, let's go out and make money in the solar industry. <laughs> and magically they figure it out. And magically they figure it out. I'm a business guy. Whatever regulation government comes up that, that hurts me as a businessman, guess what? I'm smarter than the government guys and the bureaucrats making those rules. I figure out a way to get around it, not get around it uh, you know, illegally, but I figure out a way to legally make it happen so I can still make money. And they'll figure it out. They're smart guys. All right. I, I have w at least one more thing I'd really like to talk to. I don't mind going on until you, sure. you want to stop. You know, until, but, but I just want you to be aware that we're about an hour now. So That's okay. Whatever's good for you works for me. Okay. Um, so give me some other platform major platform to actually I'll tell you the one thing on your website the major bullet points that is different than Bernie is that instead of lowering costs or making college free you want interest-free loans correct so, I don't think making college free right now is practical but but, but 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 the concept of making college cheaper as opposed to making loans cheaper Okay, so let's talk about this, okay? Because it, it take, both take into effect. So right now, students go in. Um, if mom and dad can write the check, they write the check. If mom and dad can't, for most people, mom and dad can't write the check. The students take out loans uh, and do what they have to do to get themselves to college, and then they're burdened with those loans. What I'm saying is let's reverse the system. 
you pay your college tuition based on how much you earn after you graduate from college. So if you want to get a job on Madison Avenue when you graduate from college and you're fortunate and they pay you $75,000 a year um, when you get out of school, you pay back 5% of your after-tax income to your school as part of your tuition payment and in the form of a loan system. Okay? But let's say you want to go out and save lives. You want to go to Appalachia and build houses for people who don't have sufficient housing. And that only pays you $10,000 a year. But you're doing a social good there. You're doing an enormous social good. And you should be rewarded for that. So your college tuition loan repayment will also be 5% of your after-tax income. It'll be a lot less than the, than the person working on Madison Avenue. So 5% for everybody? or is 5% there a different... for everyone. For everyone. How many? Right. 5%. So, so you, you get interest-free loans and you have to pay them back. But however long it takes, as long as you don't pay more than 5%, for any career That's that correct, you have but there would in. be up a limit on how long you would be indebted for those loans. Maybe we would make that 15 or 20 years. It would not be forever. But the point of it is this. A couple of things would get accomplished, right? So it would have the colleges. The colleges would then be forced to making sure they are providing an education for, that is consistent with what's going on in the real world. And they're giving, when the students leave their school, they're going to be employable and they are marketable. And it's important the schools will learn that lesson very quickly, okay, because they want to get paid back. They want their tuition loans repaid so they have an incentive. And you know what? The fact of the matter is the schools have gotten ridiculously expensive. We've got adjunct professors who are making close to nothing. Yet we're paying football coaches in some cases and presidents of universities millions of dollars a year. And, and 18 and 22-year-old students are signing loans and debts to finance that system. School is not supposed to be uh, a get-rich-quick scheme for the administrators. You want to get rich quick. You want to make a lot of money. You want to make millions of dollars. Go, go work on Wall Street. Get a job in a major law firm. But that we shouldn't be burdening our children to pay these ridiculous bills. So, I maybe just clarify. Maybe I just missed it. What interest-free loans, five percent, and only for fifteen years or whatever? I, that's I don't have a problem with that. I think that's that's a good idea because it's not overburdening people. Right. Um, but what what would you do to lower the costs of college? And maybe you okay. answered this, and I missed it. So part. So if the school knows how much they're going to get paid back. I mean, maybe it's not even necessary given this system, but. Yeah, so it, the, the colleges will, will start to lower the cost themselves because there's only going to be so much money available to them when it gets paid back to them. In other words, if the... If that, so the end of that 15 years, whatever that ends up being, that's what they get. That's they the don't, tuition. They don't get... No, where would they the, get it from? The difference? No, no we have to... They, they, the colleges have not demonstrated the ability to control their costs. Well, 15 times 5 is not 100%. So I didn't say it was 100%. The tuition... The, okay, it's tied as a loan. It's a loan. The, the, in other words, the process is a loan repayment. Every month you make a loan repayment. Okay? But it's a flexible loan. It's tied to your earnings. So that the school is oh, forced. Oh, your earnings, of course. It's tied of course, to of your course. earnings for a particular period of time. The schools will be forced to manage themselves much better. And rather than buying, you know, rather than building buildings, you know, you know, out of granite and marble with big names on them, they'll focus on educating the students as a first priority. All right, that's interesting. I, I had that's a that's interesting. It's a new something I had not heard before. Okay, um, I he told me 
that this Ben's Ben it's right there. Right there. Hey, ben. Um, he told me that you are into you believe in term limits. Can you talk about that? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, and first, let me put my money where my mouth is. I've been a councilman for two terms in Tenafly, and I made a conscious decision. Of course, I'm running for governor. You can't run for governor and run for town council at the same time. And uh, my colleagues on the town council, frankly, wanted me to run for another term as a councilman. And uh, I said, no, I've done two terms. It's time for some fresh blood. I'm going to run for a different office. And so I put my money where my mouth is, and I'm supporting two other people as council people in Tenafly this year. Um, and I think we need to have term limits for our state legislators. We need to have term limits for our congressmen and our senators. And um, people say to me, the people who are against that say, wow, what if we have a great person? He's a great guy. She's a great woman. We don't want to lose them in the state house. Well, the question I would say to people, because in the same conversation, someone has said to me, uh, how are you going to lower my taxes? What's going on with health care? I can't afford college. And I say, well, why do you keep electing the same people over and over again and expect a different result? Because you can't get a different result. But they like the results that you're giving, so why would they, how does that argument fit with you getting out if they really, if the, you are really benefiting the town and your constituents really like that? Because I believe in, ter- in consecutive term limits. So if you're in the state legislature and you're in, let's say, three or four terms, you're in there for eight years and you're really wonderful, but you're, you're limited to your four terms and you sit out a term. And if you're so magnificent, you know, two years later, you can come back and run again and the people can put you back into the position that you uh, were term limited from. Um, I think it's important for our republic, for our democratic form of government, that we have movement, that different people are in there. Come on, we have people in our state legislature for 20, 30 years. We have Congress people. We have, we've had Congress people and senators who are wheeled in on their wheelchairs. What about Bernie? He's, he's going on, what is it, 20, 30? Look, I don't know what it, it is. It doesn't What's, mean— do, do, I mean, what do you think about that? So I, I don't—I mean, he, he's, he's included just like myself. Just because we're good. No, but I, I, I know he would be included, but how do you justify, obviously a lot of people would choose him to not go away, so how do you justify that, which I know you sort of are partially already did, but... Well, because it's for the greater good, frankly, because the system we have now, the, the process we have now is not working. The money controls every aspect of the political process. It's almost impossible for an incumbent to lose an election. Even on a local town council level, it's almost impossible to lose an election. What beyond money in politics is, makes it impossible? To lose? Because, impossible sure, to lose. Because once you have the county line in the state, once you're on the line, there's a certain percentage of the voters who are voting for the line, regardless of if they even know your name. Whether they're Democrats or Republicans, you've got a whole group of voters who will vote the line. And that line is all-powerful. That line is dictated by who you're friends with and how much money gets brought to bear. And the higher up you go in the political process, the more important that becomes. The most honest level are the city council levels because you know your neighbors, you know the people you're voting with and voting for you, you know the people at the football games. Honest in what respect? I don't know what that means, the most honest, honest in level. Honest sense that at a city council level or a council level, you know the people that are voting for you. When you're in a city council meeting, okay, it doesn't matter whether you're in Tenafly or in Newark, and I've been to Newark city council meetings, the people you represent are right there in the audience. 
is the same people that your kids that your kids are friends with their kids, the same people you see at the supermarket. When I'm in a town council meeting, when people are unhappy with what, I, what I'm doing or a decision I make, those people are my neighbors and my friends, and they come up in public and tell me what I'm doing wrong. So most honest face. is you actually know your representative. You know, you know, we know exactly. You know who represents you. And so on a local town council race or a city council race, you don't get elected simply because of money. You actually have relationships with people, and people either agree or disagree with you, and they like you or they don't like you. But once you get to levels above that, you get into the state legislature, and who, by the way, exempts themselves from Open Public Records Act and Open Public Meetings Act, where if I tried to do that, I'd be in jail. But the state legislature passed the laws and they exempt themselves from it because... Individually or as the legislature itself, the group? No, the legislature exempting all the members from the Open Public Meetings Act and the Open Public Records Act. So, so you have situations like that and then the people, you can't participate in a legislative session when you're, when you're in the gallery. You sit and you watch and the legislators do their thing. And it, and it goes on from there. And then you get to the United States Congress and the House, and United States Senate. You're even more removed from the voters. I mean, that, so there's my issue with it. Not that, uh, not that Senator Sanders or any one individual themselves are bad actors or problematic. What I'm saying is because the money has corrupted the process so much, because the money has corrupted the process so much, we need to do something to counter-effect that. And I think consecutive term limits is a good start to that process. Okay, so it clearly will get bad people out. I mean, that's, that's granted. Clearly, uh, and, and we have to set aside money in politics just because it's just too big of a topic. Clearly, that, that affects everything. Um, what, say what you were going to so say. So it's, it's, it's not about bad people. I'm not, I'm not even... Make, I mean, you said fresh blood. Uh, fresh, no, it's more sorry, than that. But, but, but that's important. But, the, but at least as far as dealing with corruption, that would clean things out. That, that definitely Yes, has. it would. But, you know, I use the term fresh blood for a reason and not bad people. Because, you know, people say to me, when I first got into politics and got elected, uh, people said to me, uh, Mark, uh, my taxes are too high. You need to lower my taxes. And I would go into these justifications about what we spend money on, roads, sewers, things like that. So now when people say to me, Mark, my taxes are too high. You have to lower my taxes. I say, right, your taxes are too high. Tell me which services you would like me to cut first. Give me your top three. Do you want me to, do you want me to cut uh, the ambulance corps? Do you want me to cut the 911 service? Do you want me to stop paving roads? Maybe we won't pay the sewer bill. Which would you like me to cut? Because taxes are the price we pay to have services delivered to us. But the problem is if we keep electing the same people over and over again, and those people are getting reelected, the message is they're doing everything right. How could we have Congress with like a 22% approval rating when everyone in the country is so upset we put Donald Trump in the White House? How is it possible? There's a real disconnect. It's because everyone hates Congress, but everyone loves their own congressman. All right. I, I actually, I'm not an expert on this at all. I, I strongly disagree, given my awareness of the issue. I strongly disagree with this. Fair enough. And the reason I disagree with this is that incumbents keep on winning because they keep on getting voted for. Mm -hmm. But it is in a system where we do not truly have one person, one vote. Correct. So I see term limits 
as being a misguided way of dealing with the true problem, given putting, setting aside money in politics, of dealing, of a misguided way of dealing with the true problem, which is truly changing our voting rights so that it is truly one person, one vote. And if that happens, this is why incumbents keep on winning, because of the nonsense that happens around elections mm -hmm. and around, you know, what happened to Bernie Sanders and, and uh, the powerful people with Phil Murphy, uh, uh, 21, all, every single yep. county going yep. for him. If we truly had one person, one vote, then we would, that would be all, and then elections would be the only term limits that we need. Because if they're not, if they're not representing the people, then they wouldn't be voted in again. As long as everyone truly had the right and was encouraged and enabled to vote, so I I think term limits is, I think term limits deals with. It, there's a deeper problem. There's a deeper problem, and if there's the need for fresh blood, then people would vote for someone else. If there was not the need for fresh blood, like with Bernie Sanders, then they would keep voting for the same person, and they would truly have to represent the people, and then the people at the election time would, would truly say, you are representing my needs, you are not representing my needs. So, uh, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I, mean, I agree. I don't, I don't agree with this fresh blood thing as long as there is truly one person, one vote. Right, but there, there isn't the practical aspect of it. There isn't one person, one vote. I mean, um, you know, Bernie lost because, again, the because DNC, there's not there's one not person, one, one person, vote. one vote. So the question becomes, how do we get there? And there's multiple ways of getting there. Um, if we want to have one person, one vote, which I 100% agree with, we need to completely change how we finance political campaigns, and it should only be public financing. We have to end the party chair controlled over the primary process in every state, or certainly in the state of New Jersey. So there are multiple institutions. We have to address First Amendment rights about people putting their own money into campaigns and stop that. And uh, so, the thing that's come up a number of, a few times in the past month or so, which is uh, prisoners and, and, and ex-felons. Oh, well, cool. well sir, first off, okay, so let's go on that topic for a but, second. But before we go on that topic, Remember to go back to this. Remember to go back to this. Now I ask you again. Go ahead. Assuming there was truly one person, one vote, what do you say about term limits? Okay, if there was one person, one vote, and we had the solution for the money solved so that we had public financing, okay, then we don't need term limits. I agree with you on that point. One person, one vote, and everyone's equal in terms of the money, and it's all about the ideas and the individuals, then we don't need term limits. Then I, I would actually strongly suggest that I, I actually haven't heard you talk about this. I heard him tell me that you did. That when you talk about term limits, that it is predicated on money and politics and voting mm -hmm. rights. And that given our current situation, then term limits is a good thing. But the real problem is that we really, that, that given the current system, the corruption of the current system, term limits is a good thing. But what the real problem is, is that the system needs to be changed. Would, agree, would you agree I with that? I completely agree with that, absolutely. Good, good. So you were going to tell, I forget the topic. We were going to talk about a little bit of criminal justice. So 
Let's, um, we can go, uh, let's start with the voting rights. I feel a little vindicated that you just agree with that. No, I, I expected you to fight for term limits harder. <laughs> well, it, it's not about fighting for term limits. It's fighting for, you know, you, you've raised an important issue, right? So, so, so getting it right for the people may include 10 different steps. Or it might have a plan that has one step. And there's practical aspects to both. But the root of the problem is one person wrong. At the end of the day, that's the root of the problem. One person, one vote. But term limits is my I infer from what you're saying is that term limits is a, an easier short-term way of dealing with it. Correct. Problem. That's correct. All right, that's fair correct. enough. So social justice. Let's talk about social justice. So, I mean, this is a huge issue. So I'm a, I'm a very strong believer and legalization of marijuana for both medicinal course and recreational purposes. Um, I think... And you profess your love for Bill Brennan. <laughs> I profess my love for Bill Brennan. That's funny. You know what I'm talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. that's correct. Right, right. On the stage, he wasn't feeling loved, <laughs> but I told him I love... No, in public, in front of a thousand people. So, um, here's the thing. The, the war on drugs has basically served to incarcerate... Uh, uh, black men, Latino men, and you know we're missing a million and a half black men out of our society because they're in prisons, and it's criminalized poverty, and it's just simply morally wrong. There is nothing morally different than when someone goes home and they decide to smoke a joint, okay, and I go home and I have a glass of Jack Daniels, sometimes with ice, sometimes without ice. What is the difference morally? There is none. We have just decided to jail people for using marijuana, and we've decided to jail addicts who use uh, heroin and crack and things of that nature. So you obviously, I, I know the answer that that you uh, that uh, addiction is a medical issue, not a of criminal course. issue. Of course it's not. a medical issue. Of course it's a medical issue. The, uh, the way we're handling it, is fundamentally wrong, but we have a prison industrial complex and we like putting people in prison. Um, and we need to stop doing that. People who should be in prison are people who have committed violent crimes against other individuals and they should be in prison to keep society safe. There's no question about that. Not for people who use drugs. Doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, talking about- Not in a just world, no. Not, of course not. Isn't that what we're striving for? Isn't that what we're trying to move towards? Is we. As, as each century goes by, we try to become more and more just, and we be, try to become more enlightened rather than less enlightened. Um, so uh, point being is um, let's talk about uh, felons who can't vote. I mean, if, if you have been imprisoned and you finish your sentence and you're let free from jail, why do we continue to punish you? Don't we want to reform people's bad behavior and make it into good behavior? Because you won't vote for the ones that the powerful people want you to vote for. Well, if we have one person, one vote, the powerful... I mean, that by definition is what uh, disenfranchisement is for. Well, of course, it's, it's a method of disenfranchisement. If, if you have... But I mean, that is why disenfranchisement happens, because those people traditionally will not vote for the people who perpetuate want to perpetuate course, that system. Of course, of course. Um, so you've, you've served your time, you've paid your debt to society, you should be fully integrated back into society, you should be allowed to vote. I'm not even really clear why 
someone in prison loses their right to vote. I mean, if anything, we want to we want people to change their bad behavior. And the way you get them to change their bad behavior is by helping them integrate back in society in a peaceful, useful manner. Okay? And while we're on the same topic of getting back into society, we have this, you know, the whole ban the box movement. If, if, you come out of, if you come out of prison, what do you need? You, the first thing you need is first you need to see your family. The second thing you need is a job so you can help pay bills and you can become a productive member of society. You shouldn't be prohibited from getting a job because you are a prisoner. Now, practical aspect of it. Somebody who is, uh, you know, someone who was an accountant and was convicted of embezzlement, you're not going to want to put them in charge of your accounting system or your checkbook at the office. And that's, that's fair enough, right? But certainly that person is able to get other jobs in the community and in the company. So we shouldn't permanently ostracize people simply because they've made mistakes and they've paid their debt to society. That's criminal justice. That's part of criminal justice reform. And you, so do you believe felons... Any felon? No, not just felons. And you obviously believe felons should get the right to vote. Former prisoners, and do I'm, I believe that you also think that prisoners should get the right to vote? Period. That's correct. I, I would say there are some classes. And you, you said a story in the in the original social justice forum in Newark, where uh, something about you know my I, prisoners should be a father should be allowed to vote for their school board for their child and so on. Of course. Why, why, why would you want, why would we want to disenfranchise people? That, that's a, you know, voting is, inti- we, you know, we take voting for granted in this country. You know, people, for hundreds of years, people have died and gone to war so that we can vote because it's so important to us because it is who we are in the community. And so someone who's had bad behavior, you want them back in the community and stopping their bad behavior by integrating them back into society. And voting is one of the fundamental ways. We all do the same thing together every year. We all go and vote in the general election. It's one of the things as a society we do together. And it crosses all bounds of religion, race, money, creed, everything. And everyone should have the opportunity to vote. Um, This would be a good time to bring up your uh, thoughts of Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions. So he's my, fa- my he's my favorite Confederate general. I like to say, <laughs> so both him, his father, and his and his grandfather were named after Jefferson Davis. That's where the Jeff comes from, um, the president of the Confederacy. And his middle name is Beauregard. Uh, P. T. Beauregard was a Confederate general, of course, who wanted to keep people in slavery, much the same way that Jefferson Davis did. And so his parents and his grandparents and his great-grandparents were so enamored with, you know, Southern Jim Crow behavior that they named all the men in their family Jefferson, uh, uh, you know, Jefferson uh, Beauregard. And uh, he's fundamentally, uh, I see him as a racist. I don't know any other way to call it. When he came out uh, two weeks ago to double down on the war on drugs, it's because he wants to put black men in prison. Yeah, it's he that said, simple. Well, you have a great line. <clears throat> At the end of your uh, car... Uh, oh, yes. What do you call it? Why don't you say your line? No, which wh- I said many lines there. The, the one that ends your uh, selfie video uh, in your car, which is uh, something something about Confederate uh, monument. Oh, oh, oh. Right. So, so right now in the South, they're tearing down monuments to the Confederacy, and we should be tearing down Jeff Sessions because he also is a monument to the Confederacy. 
that's that is my view of them. Yeah, he says, and and it's just it's just a common thing for people who want the war on drugs, which is, you know, right now I I can't remember exactly, but something to the effect of when you buy drugs and something goes wrong, illegal drugs and something goes wrong, you solve the problem with the gun, but when you you know, in, in normal things, you, you solve the problem with the justice system. So we want to lock them up because we want to prevent this viol- this gun violence and so on. So why don't you make it legal? So you don't have to solve it with a gun. You solve it because you go into a store and you deal with the process of, you know, being... Well, you're being very rational. So, you know, most... You're very rational and I 100% agree with that statement. So when 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 alcohol... Everyone needs to open up their history books and, and watch an Al Capone movie. When when alcohol was illegal, all the gangsters, uh, you know, they ran the business because there was a lot of money to be made because people didn't stop drinking. The people who wanted to drink were going to drink. People who didn't want to drink didn't drink. And then what happened? Prohibition ended, and overnight, the overnight, the violence stopped because now. Because now you walk into a store and that right. you exchange and there are laws. Exactly. And, and if they screw you, then you go to the, exactly. the court. You don't have to go underground. Exactly. The same thing with marijuana. It's the same exact analogy. And, and, and let's go off on this topic, too. Marijuana is not a gateway drug to heroin. You know what the gateway drug to heroin is? It's the it's the Oxycontins and the Percocets that are in mom and dad's medicine cabinet that they didn't throw out, that the teenagers are using, and that's how they're getting hooked on the opiates and why they're moving to heroin, because it's cheaper than the Oxycontins. If we want to talk about... You want to talk about a whole drug culture. We don't need to look any further than Purdue Pharmaceuticals and the Sackler brothers. Those three brothers, they falsified the addictive nature of Oxycontin. The the FDA fined them $600 million because of their false reporting. And then what has happened? They make billions every year getting a whole country hooked on prescription drugs and opiates. And it is and wrong. make a profit of much and more than six hundred million dollars. The, the six hundred million was just an amount that they put and took out of the yeah. Easy Pass account. All these, <laughs> all these fines that that banks and all these things are you know they're just cost of doing business because in this very lax legisl I don't know what you call it but lax laws these fines are just the cost of doing business and if it was a truly dr- just justice system these fines would would cripple the companies as they should. Well, right. I mean, let's look at Purdue, right? So when they tested the Oxycontin now to determine its uh, addictiveness, they had 40 people in the clinical trial group, 40 individuals, and they reported that uh, no more than one out of 100 would become addicted. So how do you come to that number when your sample group is only 40? Wouldn't you need to at least have 100 people in your group? So the whole thing was based on a lie. So that's like a seventh of a person or exactly. something? Exactly. Please help me understand what a seventh Point of a person. third of a person. Right. The, all of me. Remember the movie All of Me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, so that's what happened. And, you know, parents need to understand um, when it comes to illegal drugs, it is, che- it is easier for your kids to get cocaine and heroin than it is alcohol. It is simply easier because alcohol is regulated. They can't get it. People don't sell it illegally. That's another interesting, you legalize it and make it harder for those 
younger, you know. You regulate That's it. interesting. I hadn't thought of that. You regulate it, you control it, and you tax it. That's that's how you want to, you want to get rid of the drug problem in this country. You treat it the same way we treated prohibition. You do away with it, and you regulate it, and you can control it. And the drug the drug dealers will be the people who are most against the idea of legalizing drugs because you'll put them out of business overnight. Okay, so what? Uh, actually, before we, uh, I just reminded that uh, the uh, the term limit that concept came from me from uh, Kareth Kareth. Uh, oh. Kareth Strano Taylor, Pennsylvania Fifth District. She should have won. Um, she's the one that taught me that uh, elections are the only term limits that we need. Um, uh, so, anything else with your platform that you want to talk about? I think we've we've covered transportation. We've tr- covered healthcare. We've tr- we've covered employment. Um, a big believer in transportation, as I said. We need to recognize that the state of New Jersey, you know, Philadelphia, and New York City are like the sun to those suburban areas in terms of job opportunities, um, in terms of cultural opportunities and educational opportunities, and we need to increase our public transportation in this state. You know, we have a multi-trillion dollar economy that moves back and forth between these three states, and we need to do everything we can to promote that. Okay, um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with a few specific questions that Ben gave me. Sure. And then you can just close it off. Um, so let's see, what did I miss here? Your 88 loss to George Pataki, what was it like to face the future governor? Well, of course, at the time, I didn't know he was a future governor. Uh, so he was a... <laughs> <laughs> what, I mean, was he... Oh, thanks for clarifying. Um, was he uh, like a star at that point? Was 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 the, the before the... So, no, came? no, he was going through his learning paces, right? He was in his first term in the assembly. Smart guy, you know, very personable. And we met for our first debate. And the first... Uh, it was a radio debate. The two of us were on the air. And um, he underestimated me. We were having a conversation about the environment. Touche. Yeah. That was, that was good. Yeah. No, I didn't know he was going to be governor in the future. Okay. <laughs> <Got it. laughs> and, and he underestimated my knowledge of what was going on in New York State with some of the environmental issues. And so, what, di- what district, by the way? This was, the, this was at the time called the 91st Assembly District. It covered parts of Orange uh, and Rockland and Westchester and Putnam County. Okay. It was across the river district. Okay. So it was very interesting. He was much better prepared for his uh, for the second debate we had together on the radio. Was he good? I mean, was he? Did, were you impressed by him? Um, look, he became governor, so I'm not going to criticize the man. But he's an intelligent guy. I w- I wasn't overwhelmed by him, and I was not intimidated by him at all. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, tell us about the 1980. He wants to tell us about the 1980 DNC. So I had a, um, a press pass the, uh, to go into the convention floor, and I was there when um, Senator Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy, gave his speech, talking about how you know, the work goes on, the dream continues, um, and it moved me because what he was talking about was the future, and it's always about the future. It didn't matter to the senator. The message was, it didn't matter what happened in the past, we can get beyond that. It's always about the future we have to consider, because that's the only thing we can have an effect on. And uh, while I was watching him give this speech, the people I was with on the floor, we all kind of turned to to ourselves, to each other, and said, he should have given this speech before the vote was taken. 
because he would have become the presidential nominee. But unfortunately, he gave it after the vote was taken. That's like, uh, that's like Obama's 2004. Right. You know, we're not red, we're not blue, we're America. Correct. Uh, so the last question is, is housing is important to you. How does that affect you as governor? So let's talk about affordable housing and my town, how it affected us directly. So right now, every town in New Jersey is faced with this quagmire of, uh, because of the dysfunction in the legislature, on, bo- on both sides of the aisle, there, there are no innocent parties, and the dysfunction in the past governor's mansions, of both Democrats and Republicans, uh, we have this affordable housing situation, and fair share housing, where it's so bad the judges had to take it over in terms of building affordable housing for people and, and how many houses each town has to build. So to show you how, to give you an example of how ridiculous it is, in Tenafly, we have to build affordable housing. And we had to hire an attorney and a planner to go out and battle with the judges to make sure we have the right amount of affordable housing, not more than we need and not less than we need, but the right amount. So we're spending money on lawyers making sure we get the right deal. Now, a couple of months ago, my colleagues on the borough council and I decided there was a spot in town. We have an affordable housing trust fund in town with money in it. We want to buy this property and make a deal with someone like United Way to build affordable housing there. Okay? So we made an application to the state, said we have our own cash, we want to spend it, we want to build affordable housing. Fair Share Housing Organization took us to court saying we can't build this affordable housing because we're spending too much money on the land. So here we are in court and we won. And who's Fair Share again? Fair Share Housing is the group that administers kind of the regulations on affordable housing throughout the state and determines how much each town has to build. But because there's so much dysfunction on everyone's part, the courts took it over. So here we are paying took lawyers. Over, took over fair share. Correct. All the decision-making abilities. So we, here we are paying lawyers to prevent too much affordable housing being built in our town, if you can even imagine such a thing. And the other side, we're paying lawyers fighting with the courts to be able to build affordable housing. That's how dysfunctional this has become in New Jersey, and your average your average resident doesn't see that, but that's what's going on. We won the argument. We're able to go forward and build the affordable housing units we wanted to build. We had to spend legal fees for the right to build affordable housing in the town. It's so ridiculous. So, in Tenafly, what we're doing is, we're, and I would do this for the whole state, I'm looking at, we're looking at, my colleagues and I, what makes sense? Let's negotiate a solution. We're moving out of the courtroom, negotiating the best solution we think based on transportation, based on available jobs, based on available land, to build affordable housing in our town. And that's how we should be looking at it at the whole state level, not this adversarial situation we have. Right now, the folks at Fair Share, the way they previously did, do you know the space in between your curb and your sidewalk, that little foot and a half of grass? What what, what the, the Fair Share people did is they went to towns and added all that space up, that little that little strip of land. And when they added it all up, they said, oh, you've got 50 extra acres of land in town, you can build affordable housing on that. It's completely disconnected from reality, and that's why it's an example of how dysfunctional it is. You can't build houses on those little strips. I don't understand what their point, what they're trying to get across. What they said was, when they added up all the little strips, it adds up to that amount, of, but what up. does that have to do with they you said can build? Therefore, they wanted to include those that space as poor, as part of a town's affordable housing obligation. It's it's just patently absurd. But I don't understand why would they 
want to do that? Well, what's their point? Because they said that's available land, therefore you can build more housing. Yes, it's absurd. It's I, absurd. I, I get that it's absurd, yeah. but, but they have a point. And what are they trying to scam you out of? I don't see what they're trying to scam you out of. They want us to find the land even if the land doesn't exist. It's, it's completely irrational. You want me to give you a rational answer for something. No, I, 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 I realize it's it. not rational. Yeah. However, they have an intention, which is trying to prevent you from building, which is trying to screw things up somehow, and I don't get what that is. I don't, I don't know, necessarily they, have they to. They want us to be able, whatever municipal land, private land we can grab, wherever we can find it, we need to find it and build. That is their view, without regard to neighborhoods, without regard to public transportation or jobs. But when someone tells you, we're going to add up all your curb space and then decide that's real land you can build on, it's, that's why it's failed, because that's how they think. Okay. Okay. Close us out. So I'm Mark Zinna. I'm running for governor in the June 6th primary, and um, my view of the state is that we need to think about the future. We need to think about the people of this state, our children and our grandchildren. And we need individuals like myself who have both legislative and executive experience to bring this state forward to the future and make sure everyone has an equal opportunity when they start off life in this state that they can succeed based on the best of their abilities. And we live in an environment where, frankly, we help each other. And I'm asking the voters on June 6th to vote for me for governor, Mark Zinna. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it, and it was very generous of you to come down my way. Um, my pleasure. I wish you the best of luck Thank over you. the last week, and uh, hope it goes well. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right.